begin. Welcome to Torah Studies. Now, every week we get together, rain or shine, in person or Zoom or whatever, we get together to study the Torah portion. We study the parasha, but here's the catch. It's not just any Torah study. It's not just any parasha study. This is the goal of this, of this um, experience is to study in a way in which we're exploring the deeper ideas of the Torah, of the Parshat Hashavua, of the Torah portion of the week. So this week's Torah portion is Chaye Sara, which literally translates as the life of Sarah, Sarah being Abraham, Avram's wife. So it's called the life of Sarah, but the entire portion talks, about, well, I mean, it starts off with her passing, and then it talks about what happens after she died. So it's interesting that the whole Torah portion, the name of it, the title, if you will, not if you will, the title of the parsha, is the life of Sarah, and yet it talks about the incidences that happen from her death and on. So I'm going to share with you this is a bonus vart, a bonus idea. This is not the theme of tonight's class, but of course, you know, maybe it'll be connected somehow. But here's a bonus. No extra charge for tonight. All right? Here's the bonus. And that, the Rebbe explains that the true life of a person, how do you know someone lived? It's when even after they, ha- they no longer physically are here, their impact is still felt. That's the definition of true life. True life means that the impact is felt long after the 120 years. And so, as we think about the meaning of life and the message, the message of this week's Torah portion, the name Chayesara reminds us that her life was truly lived. And the indication is because even after her passing, her husband and her ch- child and etc., that the, the legacy continues even after she is gone. All right, so Chayesara. The, um, the Torah portion, the Torah portion, hold on. Getting some folks in. Stay with me, stay with me. Okay. All right, so the Torah portion, as I mentioned, opens up with a discussion about the passing of Sarah, Avram's wife. And the first theme that we come to is, or the first, really, the first story that we, that we encounter in this week's Torah portion is regarding Avram, Abraham, seeking a place to bury his wife. Unmute yourself if you can tell me the name of the place that ultimately Avram Avinu, Abraham, our forefather, purchases to bury his wife. Unmute yourself and go for it. You could say it in... Say it again. The cave of the Machpelah. Yes. Ma'aras the cave of Machpelah. Now, what? Yes, and in the, for those of you that are with us on the Israel tour, on our virtual Israel tour, so that we're doing this week, yes. Today we actually virtually, literally virtually visited um, the cave of Machpelah and saw inside, outside, and in between. Here's the deal. The Cave of Machpelah is a very special place. The Cave of Machpelah was purchased about 3,500 years ago um, by Abraham, which we'll, we'll explore in today's, today's uh, Torah class. Um, it, is, it is a space that is incredibly special to this very day. People make a pilgrimage to Hebron, to Hebron to visit the Cave of Machpelah. Historically, in our tradition, Historically, we know um, that there are special couples buried in the cave of Machpelah, including Abraham and Sarah, Avram and Sarah. 
Isaac and Rebekah, Yitzhak and Rivka, Yaakov and Leah, Jacob and Leah, and in our tradition, we also know that Adam and Eve, Adam and Chava, were also buried there. Four couples in the cave of Machbela, a very by raise of hand, either virtually or in person, who has visited Hebron and been to the cave of Machbela. Wow! So a bunch of hands are going up. All right, good, very good. For those of you that have been there, Kalakavod, more power to you. For those that haven't yet gone, next year in Hebron. I I, I want to say this every year this Shabbat, Shabbat Chayisara. They have in Hebron, in, in Hebron, they have Shabbat Hebron. It's a Shabbat where a lot of people come in because of the Torah's discussion about Hebron, about Hebron, about the, the Cave of Machbelah. So a lot of people make a pilgrimage to Hebron and spend Shabbat there. This year, coronavirus, travel, etc., Israel, that's not happening. But, but there's, they're going to do a virtual thing, I think, tomorrow night or tomorrow night in Israel. Whatever, I got an email today about something going on in Hebron for this weekend. Be that as it may, um, the cave of Machpelah was always a Jewish holy site. Hebron was always one of the four holy cities. I mean, the whole, the whole of Israel is holy, but there are special cities that, in Israel that, that are considered to have a special dose of holiness based on what happened there. Hebron, Hebron is certainly one of them, being that the cave of Machpelah is there. Imagine going to a site where Adam and Eve are buried, Abraham and Sarah are buried, um, uh, Isaac and Rebecca, Jacob and Leah. I mean, talk about an all-star roster. Talk about a place to, I, I mean that seriously, a, a spiritual, like just the energy. In the 1200s, in the 1200s, there were radical, um, radical Islamic groups went and took over the site and essentially started in, in, around the year 1260. And then it took a few years and ultimately Jews were banned. This is the, again, mid-1200s, banned from visiting the cave Machbela. And for a long time, Jews were not really allowed to fully enter the space. There are steps leading up to the cave Machbela. Um, it's a Herodian structure that's built over the cave Machbela, one of the... Um, one of the original Herodian structures that are still around today. Uh, very rare for that to be, to, to be a thing. So the Jews were permitted only to go to the seventh step of the outside of the structure for many, many hundreds of years. But of course, in the, um, in the Six-Day War, uh, the cave Machpelah, Hebron, was liberated by, uh, by, by, by the Jewish people. And... Now it is once again. It is uh, there is access, not full access. It's divided, anyway. But there is at least some access to the cave of Machpelah. So today we're going to learn about the origin story. We're going to learn about the origin story. What? How? How did the cave of Machpelah end up in Jewish hands? How did Abraham buy it? How did he or how did he get a hold of it? Oh, I'm giving too much away. And we're going to explore that process. Okay. So everybody with me so far with the intro? Yes. Cave of Machpelah. Karen. Connections better. Thumbs up? Okay, good. Good, awesome. Thank you for joining. It's great to have everybody here. Okay, so after Sarah passes away, after Sarah passes away, um, Avram immediately begins with, Avram immediately begins with negotiating the purchase of a burial plot. We're going to read this inside. He goes to the Chittites. 
In English, we would say probably the Hittites, <laughs> whatever. In Hebrew, it's the Hittites. The Bnei Chet, the children of, uh, of Chet, the Hittites. So take a look, take a look at, uh, at the screen. I'm going to share my screen and let's get inside the text. This is going to be text number one. I'm going to make it a little bit larger. Ray, if you don't mind, please get us started. Let me move it up to the English. Uh, please unmute yourself. Abraham, or and Abraham. And Abraham arose and prostrated himself to the people of the land, to the sons of Heth. And he spoke with them, saying, If it is your will that I bury my dead from before me, listen to me and entreat for me to Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the Machpelah, double cave, which belongs to him, which is at the end of the field, for a full price, let him give it to me in your midst for burial property. Now, Ephron was sitting in the midst of the sons of Heth, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the sons of Heth, of all those who had come into the gate of his city, saying, No, my lord, listen to me. I have given you the field and the cave that is in it. I have given it to you before the eyes of the sons of my people. I have given it to you. Bury your dead. All right, thank you. So what we have here is Avram, Abraham goes over to the people, the Bnei Chet, and he says, I have, uh, I, 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 I want to bury my wife. Will you please allow me to, will you please uh, sell me a piece of land? And he specifically is asking for the cave that is on the property of this fellow named Ephron. So he's specifically asking for this piece. According to our sages, according to the Medrash, the reason why he asked specifically for this cave is because he knew, uh, based on tradition, that that's where Adam and Eve were buried. It seems like the, the locals did not have that insider information, but that was the place where he wanted to bury his wife and to have for all time as a, uh, as, as a Jewish place, so to speak. So Ephron is there. And, um, and, and so he, he responds and he says, no, and look at the top paragraph that Ray just read on 66. He says, no, I've given you the field. I've given it to you. I've given it to you. Three times he says, it's done. I've given it to you. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about money. It's fine. Just bury, bury your, uh, your loved one. Okay. Rashi points out something interesting. Rashi explains that because Avram, because Abraham needed Ephron, because he needed him, in essence, to sell him or to, 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 to allow him to acquire this field and the cave. So that, therefore, because Avram, because Abraham needed him, he was promoted to a place of honor in the city. Take a look at Rashi. You'll see what I mean in a moment. Uh, Donna of Donna and Fred fame. Donna, please read text number two. Now, Ephron was sitting. The Hebrew word for was sitting is spelled without a vav. It can therefore be read in the past tense, meaning that he had just sat. This teaches that on that very day, they had appointed him as an officer over them. Due to the importance of Abraham, who needed him, he rose to an exalted position. Take a look at that. The implication, you can read this Rashi different ways, but here's one way that you can read it, and I like this way. You ready? Avram, Abraham, was 
a very prominent individual. Remember, Avram, as we know, the Torah tells us, was very wealthy. Avram, Abraham, was very influential. He was very spiritual. He was very connected on high, and he was very connected below. In other words, he had divine connections and also a ton of uh, worldly diplomatic connections. He was connected with kings and princes and governors. He was connected all, all, all over the place. So the fact that Avram, that Abraham, was looking for Ephron, was looking to deal, to negotiate, to get his land, that automatically raised the stature of Ephron in the city. Does that make sense what I'm saying? In other words, if, the, if, the, if, if a guy like Abraham needs you, suddenly you become important. So look at that last line of Rashi that Donna just read. Due to the importance of Abraham who needed him, he rose to an exalted position in that society, in that, in that city or in that place. All right, so that's what's going on. This is the beginning of the negotiation. Now, as you may know, as you may know, the field was not ultimately just given to Abraham and that's it. It was a little bit more complicated of a transaction. The, the transaction was a little bit more involved and that's what we encounter in text 3a. Fred, if you don't mind, please continue the narrative from the text. Hold on one second. Don't forget to unmute yourself. I got you. I did it for you. I got you. All right. And Abraham. And Abraham prostrated himself before the people of the land. He spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, But if only you would listen to me, I am giving the money for the field. Take it from me. I will bury my dead there. And Ephron replied to Abraham, saying to him, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is it between me and you? Bury a dead. All right, I'm going to stop sharing because I need to see all of you face to face. I need to see all of you face to face in order to really explore this point. I'm going to ask a question and I want you to unmute yourself if you can give me the, the answer. It's not a complicated question, but it's a narrative question just to get clarity in the narrative. I want to make sure that we're all clear. Okay, so let's, let's piece together the story. The story begins, um, the story begins with Avram, Abraham, approaching the people, the Chittites, and saying, look, I need a place to bury my wife, the cave, the field, etc. Ephron says, no problem, I'll give it to you. What, just, what did we just read? What did, explain to me what just happened in Fred's reading text 3a. What, what, what happened next in the narrative? Dr. Maxi, go ahead. So Abraham said, no, I want to buy it. I want to pay money for it. And Ephron said, no, no, we're friends. What's the deal? We're good buds. So between you and I, I'll just give it to you. And my take on that is Avram Avinu, being as wise as he was, knew that, you know, 6, 8, 10, 200, 5,000 generations from now, if you gave it, you can take it back. And if you bought it and you own it and you have a deed, you bought it and you own it and you have a deed, and you can pass that deed to your progeny and it isn't disputed. Even though it has been, it isn't. Excellent, 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 excellent. Okay, so hold, hold on to the conclusion because that's 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 excellent. But let's let's rewind the tape just a drop. So initially, Ephron says, it's yours, take it. Avram is insistent in text 3a. Avram says, no, 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 no. Don't, don't do me any favors. Don't give me any gifts. I want to pay for it. Now, 
Ephron could have said, no, 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 really, I'm not. But Ephron says, all right, you want to pay for it? 400 silver shekels. Now, we know this. 400 sh silver shekels was a decent amount of money at that time. Uh, it, it, was, uh, it, it was a decent amount of coin. So, you know, once they got past the pleasantries, I'll oh, take it. No, no, I don't want to take it. All right, well, then, you know, he's giving him re basically retail price. And so it goes, so it goes that that is how the transaction goes down. Let's continue with the reading. Let's just finish the narrative here. And then we're going to do a deep, a deep analysis on it. Um, 3B, let's complete the transaction. Um, let's see, who will we ask to, you know, Dr. Maxi, uh, if you don't mind, please read text 3B uh, right over here. And Abraham, listen. And Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out to Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the sons of Eth, 400 shekels of silver accepted by the merchant. And so the field of Ephron, which was in Marcela, facing Mamre, was established as Abraham's possession. This included the field and the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field, which were within his entire border around. It was to Abraham as a possession before the eyes of his son, before the eyes of the sons of Eth, in the presence of all who had come within the gate of his city. Perfect, thank you. So what we have here is the completion of the deal in which after the price was set by Ephraim, by the, by the owner of the field in the cave, Abraham weighs out the silver gives him the 400 shekels of silver, and it's done. And what happens? The field, the cave, and the Torah tells us it even had trees. I love how the Torah describes it. There were trees also in the property. Everything was sold to Abraham as Abraham's possession. And the Torah emphasizes, it was in the last line over there, it was in the presence of all who had come within the gate of his city. In other words, it was not a secret transaction, not a deal behind closed doors. This was a public transaction. It's, I think, like real estate nowadays where you can like look up the records and see who bought it, who sold it, how much, right? Public record. This was public record that it was sold to Abraham. Now, there is an interesting line here that we do, that we probably should explain. Um, I can't highlight it, but I'm going to move my hand. Can you guys see my digital hand? I think you should be able to see it. Okay. Follow, remember those things where the song used to have the little thing that used to go along? Okay, look at this, yeah, look at this uh, last line of the first paragraph. It says that he weighed out 400 shekels of silver accepted by the merchant. Accepted by the merchant? What does that mean? Sounds like um, one of those credit card commercial slogans, which is like, you know, um, I forget already the line. Visa, it's everywhere you want to be, or, you know... I, Whatever the, whatever the line is, what does it mean that the shekel, silver shekels were accepted by the merchant? Well, I'm glad you asked because Rashi, Rashi gives a really wonderful explanation. All right, this is text number four. Take a look at this. This is really cool. Um, Susan, are you up to reading? No? Richard? Yeah, Susan of Susan and Richard fame. Um, you guys are unmuted, so uh, I'll what? I'll read, I'll read. An I'll, I thought you meant the other Susan. No, it's you. The name Ephraim is spelled without above because he pronounced, he pr promised much, but not do even a little. But he took large shekels. Cantarin worth 100 small, smaller shekels. As the verse states, 
accepted by the merchant, i.e., they are accepted everywhere as a full shekel, for some places have large shekels. So let me, can I explain what's going on here with the shekels? So many shekels. Yeah. Different types of shekels. What's going on here? <laughs> How many shekels are there? Well, it turns out currency then it was really not much different than currency today. Although today's a lot of currency is digital and a lot of I mean it's like you know just numbers on a on a, on a screen, um, and uh, yeah, cryptocurrencies even and paper. Back then it was straight up silver, but as it is today, in different regions and different locales and different nations there were different currencies that were used and there were different exchange rates. So one, one dollar, you know, let's use a good example. So one US dollar is different than a Canadian dollar, which is different than an Australian dollar, right? It's all called dollar, but it's different amounts and there's a different exchange rate, let alone when you deal with the dollar and the pound or the dollar and the euro, right? Those have different names. But back then a shekel, Shekel meant, you know, a unit, a unit of silver. But different places had different weights of silver or sizes of silver that they would call a shekel. You with me on this? So some places, this was a shekel. In some places, this was a shekel. In some places, I mean, I'm just making up, uh, you know, sizes here. But there were small shekels, larger shekels based on where you came from. But there was one shekel known as the kantarim. Kantarin. Um, those shekels were accepted everywhere because those were the biggest shekels. Those were the universal, oh, thank you. Those were universally accepted shekels. So it, sometimes you would bring your shekel, you would go to the store, and oh, Coca-Cola. Back then they also had it. Coca-Cola, how much for the Coca-Cola? Two shekel. Beautiful, I have two shekels. They would look at you and say, Pah, those are not shekels here, you need larger coins. That's like a half a shekel. You need a bigger coin. So, but if you had a kantarin, if you had those, those were accepted everywhere. Abraham, Abraham paid. Abraham paid. 400 of the largest shekels around. You want to see shekels? He's going to show you shekels. Those were the real shekels. What's the point? Even though Ephron's currency was actually of the smaller shekel. As you notice, you might have remembered, Rashi says it was a hundred of the smaller shekels to that shekel. You saw that, right? You notice that? One hundred to one? Wow. Nonetheless, Abraham gave him four hundred. What's four hundred? Unmute yourself, do some easy math or some math here. Four hundred times one hundred. Four hundred times one hundred is? Help me out here. 40, 40,000, 40, 40, yes, 40,000, um, yeah, 40,000 of the smaller shekel, that's a lot of shekels, that's a lot of money, Abraham offered, insisted, went to the max to pay the biggest and the most for the field, now, last week we asked the question, was Abraham the first Jew? Based on this purchase, he was definitely not Jewish. What kind, of, what kind of business deal is this? What kind of Jew? Pays full price, offers full price, gives the biggest currency. What kind of Jewish purchase is that? Who does that? Who does that? Right? Always looking for a deal. Listen, I'm not, uh, it's not a bad thing. It's a thing, right? 
I love Jews. I happen to know many of them. But the, a deal is a deal. Everyone's looking for a deal, right? So what's he doing? Offering full price, paying full price, paying more than full price, a hundred times the full price. What kind of business is this? All right. All right. So we need to look at a beautiful medrash. This is going to be text five. And this is along the lines of what of what Dr. Maxey was mentioning before. All right. Um, other Donna. I don't like using that word, other Donna. Donna. Okay, please read. I'm going to share my screen. Please read text five. This is a very important text. Very pivotal text in tonight's conversation. Hold on. Let me advance it. Here we go. Majesh Baresha Rabba, Rabbi Yudan. Please begin. Rabbi Rabbi Yudin Bar Simon said, There are three places of which the Gentiles cannot harass the Jewish people, saying, You have stolen them. They are the cave of Machpelah, the temple, and Joseph's burial plot. The cave of Machpelah, as the verse states, And Abraham listened to Ephron. And Abraham weighed out to Ephron 400 shekels of silver. The temple, as the verse states, And David gave to Arnon for the place shekels of gold weighing 600. Joseph's burial plot, as the verse states, and he bought the part of the field, i.e. Jacob had purchased Shechem where Joseph is buried. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So let, let's, let's go over this because again, this is, sorry, this is really important. So this is again the Medrash, and the Medrash says there are three places that really, 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 there's no, there's no even, there's no question that these are Jewish holy places. And again, the whole land of Israel is, is special, is, 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 is given to the Jewish people. But these three places, even as, as, um, as Dr. Maxter said before, we have the deed for the, from the purchase. The cave of Machpelah, the space, the Temple Mount, and Joseph's burial plot in Shechem. And the Medrash says, look at the verses. Machpelah, cave Machpelah. Avram paid Ephron, the temple, mount, David gave to Arnon, also known as Aravna, he has different names in scripture. All right, he bought the temple, mount, land. Joseph, in Shechem, that was bought by his father, Jacob. Jacob had purchased that land where Joseph was ultimately buried. You know, Joseph was originally buried in Egypt, but with the exodus, Joseph's body was taken out, transported through the 40 years in the desert, and then buried ultimately in Shechem. This is uh, our tradition. So what's the point? The point that the Medrash is saying is that there was... Now, well, one second, I have to be very clear here. Somebody could always challenge. When the Medrash says there are three places that no one can challenge, guess what? It can be challenged because people will say anything. But what it means is you can't even have a chance for a legitimate challenge. Are you with me on what I'm saying? The difference between a challenge and a legitimate challenge? What the Medrash is saying, what the Medrash is saying is, of course anyone can make up something and 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 you know and 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 complain and and whatever. But but the legitimacy simply there's no there's no ground to stand on certainly with these three places, because they were literally purchased by Jews for the people, for the Jewish people. Now, the question that we're going to ask, okay, and these three places are the cave of Machpelah, 
the Temple Mount, and Shechem, the burial place of Joseph. Okay, wonderful. But here's the question. The question is, and we, you know, I kind of mentioned it. We've kind of mentioned it before, but I need to ask it as a question in order to get to an even deeper understanding of, the, of what we just learned. The question that I'm about to ask is as follows. If God promised the land of Israel to Abraham, and it's not an if, what I mean to say is, seeing as God promised the land of Israel to Abraham and his descendants, not once, not twice, not three times, a half a dozen times, and God again promises, to, is it, promises it to Isaac and then to Jacob. But let's speak about Abraham. God promises Abraham multiple times before the story of Sarah's burial, before the story of the purchase of the cave of Machpelah. God says, I'm giving you this land. Look all four directions. Look north. Look south. Look east. Look west. All of this land I'm giving to you and your descendants. If that's the case... If that's the case, then we must ask the question, why the insistence to pay? If anyone has a claim, we just say, we pull out the deed of the Torah and say, look, God gave it to us. That's it. God gave it as a gift. In other words, yeah, it's nice to have, you know, a purchase, like a, you know, a, a receipt, but is a receipt better than a divine, prov than a divine promise? Seems like a divine promise would be, uh, would be the, best, the best proof that anyone could need. Um, I, I feel like I'm going to skip text 6a because it's just reiterating one of the many times that the, the promise is stated. So, uh, of God to Abraham. Let's jump to text 6b and look at the way the Rebbe asks this question. Okay, this is coming from a beautiful, beautiful insight of the Rebbe on this story. And that's why, as you'll see soon, sorry, I'm not sure what I did there. Here we go, text 6b. Okay. Let's ask Mike. Mike Carter, are you up to reading? Yes, I am. All right, text 6B. Why did Abraham wish to purchase the field and the cave specifically at full price when he could have taken them even without paying by right of God's promise? To your offspring, I will give this land. There you go. So that's the question. question is, if God promised it, that's it. That's, that's all the justification you need. That's all the, the answers that you need for the person that might say, hey, how dare you? Who gives you the right? Who gave you the land? How do you, why are you here? God gave it. It's in the document. You need, you need to buy it from Ephron. What's going on here? So that's the way the Rebbe asked the question in his, in his sicha, in his talk. So to explore this a little deeper, let's explore the other, one of the other examples of purchases that we had before. Remember we had that Medrash that listed three different cities that were purchased by Jews? Cave Machpelah, Temple Mount, and uh, Shechem, Joseph's burial spot. So let's look at that middle example, the Temple Mount, the story of King David. So here's what you need to know. King David was, at that point that the story takes place, King David was the king. Let me stop sharing so I can see you all. King David was the king, and a plague had broken out. And amongst the Jewish people. And the plague took out many, many numbers of, uh, of Jewish people. So, there's an angel that appears. An angel that appears on a threshing floor. In an area where they used to thresh. 
And the angel appears, and the angel is meant to bring healing and stop the plague. But the angel then turns around and says, I have another message to deliver. And the angel of God speaks to one of the prophets to tell David, here's the deal. This place that I'm standing, this space, this threshing floor, I want you to purchase to build God's palace, to build the holy temple. Take a look at this inside from the original text. I'm going to open up and share my screen with you. Let's, uh, let's jump right in. This is from the book of Chronicles, text 7a. Let's see who is going to read this. Let's ask um, Steve, Steve Horowitz. It's great to see you. Please read text 7a and the angel of God. Oh, one thing before you begin reading. Um, the, word, the name God, not God, G-A-D, God, that is the prophet who was being communicated with by the angel as a go-between between the angel and King David. All right, Steve, go ahead. And the angel of God said to God uh, to say to David that David should go up to erect an altar to God in the threshing floor of Aran, uh, Aravna, the Jebusite. And David went up according to the word of God that he spoke in the name of God. And Aran returned and saw the angel and his four sons who were with him hid themselves. And Aran was threshing wheat. And David came up to Aran, and Aran looked and saw David. And he went forth from the threshing floor, and he bowed down to David with his face to the ground. So I mentioned the threshing floor, but I, I forgot to mention another very important piece of this. And that is the threshing floor. What kind of threshing floor was this? It belonged to a fellow. He wasn't Jewish. His name was, again, he has two names in scripture, either Arnon or Aravna. Same guy, I guess he had a nickname or one of them was a nickname, one of them was a given name. Arnon, Aravna, whatever. He was a Jebusite, a Yavusi, not a, not a Jew. Um, that's in the Adam Sandler song, the Hanukkah song. Arnon the Jebusite. Not a Jew, but he sold it to the temple, to the man. Okay, no, that's not there. But let's get back to the story. So the angel appears in his threshing floor, right? And the angel communicates with the prophet to tell David, buy this space. So what happens is the owner of the threshing floor sees the angel along with his four sons, right? And at that point... He bows down to David, realizing that something big is going on. Well, at that point, David comes to him and says, Hey, I'd like to buy this to build the Jewish temple. Well, guess what? Arnon, or Aravna, whatever, that guy, after having seen the angel of God himself with his own eyes, him and his four sons, and now being asked, Oh, well, the angel just told us that we should buy this land. And he saw the angel. So what do you think he says to David? Unmute yourself if you can take a wild stab. What do you think he says to David when David says, hey, can I purchase this? What do you think he says? Yes, I'll give it to you. I'll give yeah. it to you. Excellent. Yes. He says, yes, not only that, I'll give it to you for free. Take it from me. I don't want to sell it. And this is what we have in text 7b. All right, text 7b. Uh, let's ask um, Irena, if you're up to it. Irena, if you're up to it, please unmute yourself to read text 7b. Wait, don't forget to unmute yourself if you're muted. 
Can you hear me? I can hear you loud and clear. Perfect. And David said to Oranan, Aravna, give me the place of the threshing floor so that I may build thereon an altar to God. Give it to me for the full price so that the plague be stayed from the people. And Oranan said to David, take for yourself and may my lord the king do what seems good in his eyes. See, I have given the cattle for burnt offerings and the threshing tools for firewood and the wheat for a meal offering. I have given everything. And King David said to Oranan, no. For I will buy it for the full price, for I will not take what is yours for God and offer up burnt offerings for nothing. And David gave the Ornan for the place shekels of gold weighing 600. Similar story, right? Think about it. A very similar story, right? So King David is asking for it. Arnon Aravna, right? He's clearly blown away by what he just saw with the angel. And he says... Uh, King David, you're good. We're, we're good here. I'm going to give it to you. He's like, no, no, no. I want to pay for it. He's like, no, 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 really. I, it's done. It's given. Not only that, you can take my animals. You can take my tools. Use the wood for, for fire, for, you know, wood burning fire, for firewood. You can use my, um, the wheat for the meal offerings. You got it. It's all yours. I'm, it's a gift. It's a gift. Who wouldn't accept that gift? Well, King David wouldn't accept that gift. King David said, no gift. No gift. I'm going to pay for it. And he paid him 600 shekels of gold. Forget silver. Now we just, uh, <laughs> Abraham just <laughs> lifted it up a notch. 600 gold shekels. Can you imagine what that's worth in today's currency? Forget about it. All right. So that's what's going on. King David, once again, just like Abraham, is paying full price. And once again, we can ask a similar question that we asked, that the Rebbe asked on Abraham. Just like the Rebbe asked by Abraham, what's the deal with Abraham paying for it if God already promised it to him? What kind of, it's done, it's given to him, he's, pay, he's paying for it. We can ask the same question regarding King David. Yes, the entire land of Israel was already promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And not only that, by the time King David is king, the Jewish people had possession of the land. By the way, there were still others living there. It, it Just because the Jews had settled the land doesn't mean that there weren't any other people around. There were. There were wars. There were battles the whole time. Right? That, so that's why you had this fellow who had this piece of land and he was owning and operating a threshing floor. But... So, uh, I have a question. Hold on. Hold on. But let me wrap the question. Well, let, me, let me wrap up this point. So the, but because King David was the king of, of Israel, Right? of the king of Judea, so eminent domain. The king, forget the offer of the gift. The king could take whatever he wants. He was the king of Israel, the king of the Jewish people. He could have taken the land and said to Arnon or Ravna, he could have said, thank you very much. You've, uh, you're, you're, you're a patriot. You're, uh, we're going to give you a plaque. We're going to put a little thing that says, you know, Arnon or Ravna, you used to thresh here, and now it's a temple. Maybe or maybe not. Whatever. But the king could take it. It's his. He says, no. He says, no. I'm not going to take what's yours. Look at that second to the last paragraph. For I will not take what is yours. What is yours? 
What makes it is? What makes it Aravnas? What makes it Arnons? Arnons. Makes it what's God, David says it's I'm not gonna take what's yours. What do you mean what's yours? You're the king. God promised the land. You're the king of the land. What's going on? So, yeah, so uh, Dr. Maxi, go ahead. So, is there any significance to the fact that Abraham fought from the Hittites <clears throat> and King David fought from the Jebusites, or was that just happened to be the non Jew that owned the land and they bought it? There may be significance. Excellent question. There may be a significance to these specific nations. You know, the, the land of Canaan, that the way it was known before it became the land of Israel, had multiple nations, nationalities living there, including Chiti, Yavusi. These are two of them. What's the significance of these specific ones? It's probably, expo probably explored somewhere. I don't, have, uh, I don't have it in my fingertips, but it's something definitely to think about. So here's the way the Rebbe explains it. Again, these are questions that the Rebbe asks. Abraham doesn't need to buy it. David doesn't need to buy it. Why do they buy it? The Rebbe explains it's not about ownership. If the question was about ownership, they wouldn't have to buy it to own it. Abraham owns it. His descendants own it because it was promised to them as part of the Holy Land. King David owns it because it's part of the Holy Land. And he's the king. You don't buy it to own it. Again, I want to be very clear here. They didn't give the money and do the purchase to own it. They already owned it. Why did they give the money? To remove, very, very important, to, rem to remove any association, any foreign external association to those spaces. Are you with me on what I'm saying? It wasn't about owning it was about making sure that no one even thinks that it on some level is still shaykh, is still associated with, whether it's uh, Ephron or Aravna or Arnon, right? That no one should associate. And I, I gave you the example before in a different way, but it, remember I said the plaque? I just mentioned it a moment ago. Oh, they could have written a plaque saying... Uh, um, um, Arna, Arna, Naravna gave this land to, uh, to build a temple. That's exactly why David bought it. That's exactly why David bought it. So that there shouldn't be any remnant. Now, you know it's in the scripture and we're reading it, but there shouldn't be an association because when you pay full price, not just a little, not a, not a deal. When you pay full price, that takes it out of the previous association. Psychologically, in other words, the, the perception, perception is reality. The perception, if it was given as a gift, the perception, if it was sold at a discount was, there's still an association, right? Because he gifted it or he discounted it. No, 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 no. I paid full price. A deal's a deal. It's done. It's clean. Are you with me in the difference? The Rebbe says it wasn't about ownership as much as it was about removing the other association to make it exclusively the domain of that holy space. Let's read this inside and you'll see in the original language, the Rebbe's original language, you'll see it for yourself. This is text number eight. I think I'm going to read this one myself. Here we go. We're, listen to this. Were David to take the threshing floor only by right of having conquered the entire city of Jerusalem, Aravna would still be somewhat associated with it. Moreover, even had a, so if he pulled eminent domain, it still would have been, oh, he, he took it from Aravna. Moreover, even had Aravna gifted it to him, 
which you would think means relinquishing that association. No, no, no. The threshing floor would still retain its status as yours, as King David says. It's yours, Aravnas, because he would still have retained some degree of rights to it. In other words, not even rights necessarily, but some degree of association with it. David therefore refused, saying, I will not take what is yours to any degree at all for God. In other words, if you could at any point say that I gave it or I discounted it, then that's no deal. David rather paid full price for it, its entire value, to transfer it entirely out of Aravna's rights so the altar and sacrifices wouldn't be associated with him at all. In other words, this has to be a purely divine space, purely temple, no association with Aravna or a threshing floor. Similarly, the Rebbe explains the same is true with the cave of Machpelah. The same is true with the story of Abraham and the cave of Machpelah. It's the same dynamic. It's the same energy. And what is that energy? The energy is that he wanted to make sure that there's no association with Ephron. There's no association with Ephron. There's no connection. It's not like he gave it. It's not like he discounted it. He's paying full price. And that's it. Now this explains something really powerful. Something really enigmatic in the Talmud. Uh, again, this is a little bit parenthetical, but it's so beautiful I want to share it with you. The Talmud discusses the laws of Kenyan, the laws of acquisition. How do you acquire real estate? See, real estate is, is, is interesting. If I'm selling a book to you, right? Let's say I'm selling a book, right? So you give me money and I hand you the book. When, when I hand you the book, I mean, that's me giving it to you. You gave me money, I gave you the book. That's when the deal happens. But how do you purchase land? <laughs> what are you giving? Are you with me on that? You, you understand what I'm saying? What do you, you take a, 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 a scoop of dirt and you symbolically hand it to the guy? No, that's weird. I mean, who does that, right? So how do you purchase? What, what, what's the trigger? What's the conceptual legal trigger that makes a land purchase Effective. When does it happen? So the Talmud discusses it, and the Talmud says three things. There are three ways for a land purchase to happen. So one is with money. When you give the money, when it comes to land, when you give the money, that's already, that creates the transfer. Or if the owner writes a document, a deed transfer, and transfers the deed, a document, that also could do it. So either money from buyer to own, for, uh, from purchaser to seller, the money could do it. A deed transferred the other way from original owner to new owner could do it. The third is by the new owner taking possession of it, which means um, improving the land, um, living on the land, you know, fixing, changing the locks, whatever, some, some sort of material improvement or change, you know, uh, modification to the property, uh, that, that also acquires it. Now, again, the, I'm just giving you the, the background for the text that we're about to read, and then I want to share something that I think is very cool with you that I think you're going to enjoy. So this is all Talmudic. Everything that I just told you is the background of text 9 from the Talmud. I'm going to read this. The Mishnah states, fields, right, land, real estate. Fields can be acquired with, number one, monetary payment, number two, contracts or deeds, or three, by exercising ownership of it. In other words, doing something to uh, change 
materially change the space. The Talmud asks, from where do we know, sorry, from where do we derive that fields may be legally acquired with money? Notice, how do you know? The Mishnah says, again, understand the interplay between Mishnah and Talmud. The Mishnah is the first um, uh, emergence of the oral law that has a lot of the, the details of, of, of Jewish law. So the Mishnah makes a statement. You can acquire a field with money, contract, or exercising ownership. The Talmud asks, how do we know? What's the verse? Re the Mishnah wasn't making up stuff, but the Mishnah doesn't quote its sources. So the Talmud goes through the work. Talmud says, how does the Mishnah know that you can acquire a field by paying money? So the Talmud answers, it's a verse from, um, from I believe, Ezekiel. One second. The verse is from, no, sorry, from Jeremiah. The verse says, Hezekiah said, as the verse, sorry, Hezekiah was one of the Talmudic sages, not the, uh, the original prophet. Hezekiah said, quoting a verse from Jeremiah, as the verse states, fields shall be purchased for money. So that's a clear verse from scripture. Fields shall be purchased for money. So that's how we know, based on scripture, that you can acquire field by giving money. Asks the Rebbe, why are we finding some obscure verse in Jeremiah? Why don't we quote from Genesis? Why don't we quote from the story of Abraham? Why don't we quote from the purchase of the cave of Machpelah? Are you with me on the question? Why does the Talmud skip over the obvious source in Scripture about acquiring property through money? The Talmud says, how do we know that you can legally acquire property through money? We found a verse in Jeremiah. You found a verse in Jeremiah. What about Genesis? Hello, why are we skipping to, to, to the books of the prophets? Let's go to the, the original, you know, the OG Torah, the five books of Moses. We got a story right here. Abraham gave money to Ephron, and the Torah says, and that transferred the land from one, we read it before, from one part to the other, based on giving the money. He weighed out the money, and the land transferred. Done. That's your source. The Rebbe says, that's not your source. That's not your source. Because that wasn't about acquiring the land. Remember what the Rebbe just said? Abraham didn't give money to buy the land. David didn't give money to buy the land. It wasn't about buying the land. They already had the land. They gave the money to remove any association. So that's not a source for purchasing the land. Sorry, that's not a source for acquiring the land acquisition through, per, through, through cash transfer. Are you with me? That's a beautiful insight. The Rebbe explains why the Talmud uses a, a, an obscure source as opposed to the more obvious one because the more obvious one is not a source for what I wanted to prove. The Talmud is asking, how do we know that when you give money for land, you get land, you acquire it. So why not quote Abraham? Because Abraham didn't acquire it through that. It was already promised to him. Abraham's giving of the money was solely for the purpose of removing the association of Ephron. David gave the money to Arnon, to Ravna, right, whatever his name was, to remove his shaykhut, his connection. Right? It's, it's clean. It's done. Not the acquisition. Removing Take a look at this. Again, let's see this in the original. The Rebbe's own words, text 10. It is clear 
the Rebbe says, why the source, the Talmudic source, for the legality of purchasing real, real property for money cannot be from the story of Ephron. The reason Abraham gave Ephraim money was not to purchase the field. After all, it would have been his in any event by right of the divine gift. Rather, the purpose of giving the money was to remove any association of Ephraim with, his, with the field that would remain even when the field was no longer his. In other words, the association, oh, it was Ephraim's, he gave it or whatever, that would have remained had the money not been given. Obviously then, this verse of Abraham and Ephron cannot be used as a scriptural source for acquiring land for money. So if we're talking about the laws of acquisition, the story of Abraham is not the right story because it wasn't a story of acquisition. It was a story of removing association. So I hope that is clear. So, what, 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 okay, so now we have this clear. And what we're going to do now is we're going to extract some life lessons, some spiritual lessons, timeless lessons from this story. You see, all of us are really Abrahams and King Davids because all of us are tasked with the mission of acquiring, creating, transferring mundane land into holy land. Let me explain. We call Israel the holy land. Isn't that the purpose of life? To make holy, an adjective of land. To make the earth a bit holier, right? That's what we're here for. To make the world, to make the darkness shine. To make the world be suffused with divine light and energy. That it transforms the, the very fabric of existence. That's what we're here for. We're here to lift up the low and mundane and make it holy. There's a story, it's in the books, I'm going to paraphrase it. There was a chassid, a disciple of the Tzemach Tzedek, the third Chabad Rebbe, who came to him asking for a blessing to move to the Holy Land. Now this Rebbe saw that this man was not destined to end up in Israel. So he told him, instead of going to Israel, make here, make this place the land of Israel. In other words, you want to go to the Holy Land, make your land in Russia, make this land holy. Now again, of course, Israel is Israel, and it's the Holy Land, and it's, it's, it's even extra, extra special doses. This is not to put that down, obviously. But the point is that what is Israel a holy land? In fact, we're meant to make all land essentially holy, which means to say that this story is not just a story with Abraham, it's not just a story with King David, it's my story, it's your story. Because every day we're meant to transform the world around us into a holy space. So how do we do that? Do we cite eminent domain? Do we cite the fact that God gave it to us? No. We have to invest. That's how we transform the world into a holy place. It's by investment. There are no shortcuts in this task of making the world a holy place. You got to put in your full investment. You got to put in full cash. You got to Kesef Mole, Kesef Mole, full cash. 400 of the good coins, 600 of the really good coins. There are no shortcuts. Because the investment itself is what creates the change. Remember what we said before? The investment of the money removed the previous association and lifted it up into a holy space. The same thing is with us. It's the investment that makes the transformation. If, when we don't invest, 
If a mitzvah comes easy, was it transformative? Still a mitzvah, but did it really transform? You know, on the old bottles, the glass bottles, it used to say, no deposit, no return. Remember that one? No deposit, no return. Isn't that what life is? No deposit, no return. If you're not investing, if you're not depositing yourself in that experience, if you're not leaving it on the floor like they say in athletics, then what kind of return are you really getting? If you're skating through, then, what are you, then you don't pick up anything along the way. So here's what I mean. The Talmud discusses an ancient custom in Talmudic times to study, commit to memory, the studies, the Jewish studies, by, by reviewing the topic of, of law 100 times. That's how they used to review their studies. When, remember, this is before printed books. This is when, when the oral law was pretty much committed to memory. So how did students, Torah scholars, how did they commit it to memory? They studied a topic, every topic, 100 times they reviewed it. Today, we don't even have to study it the first time because we could just Google it. And we forget it as soon as we Googled it, right? So... That's the blessing and the curse of the information age that we live in. Nonetheless, back then, without any crutches, they had to study it a hundred times to get it clear and cup, to get it clear in the head. Okay. So the Talmud says, if you study a hundred times, you're not doing the work. But if you study a hundred and one times, then you're serving God. Then you're breaking yourself. Then you're going above and beyond. And the author explains in Tanya because 100 was the norm, like I said a moment ago. 101 means that you're, you're challenging the status quo. You're, 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 there's a deposit and there will be a return. So, what's the message here? The message is that we are meant to invest in the good deeds that we do. We're meant to invest in the mitzvah. If a mitzvah comes easy to you, that's fantastic. But don't only do it in the way that it's easy. Challenge yourself to do it above and beyond what comes easy. If you're naturally studious and you love studying Torah and every day you study two hours of Torah and it's lo you love it, don't, don't drop that. That's great. But add something that challenges yourself. Do something else. Add something to that study. Go deeper, go longer, whatever it is. Do something above and beyond what you already do to make it that much more impactful for yourself and transformative for yourself and for the experience. If we're in our comfort zones, then the transformation doesn't happen. The transformation happens. There's a great line from Leonard Cohen. There's a, right, Leonard Cohen? There's a crack in his song called Anthem. He says there's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. There's a crack in everything. That crack, the stress fractures when we, when we, when we, when we um, push ourselves to the limit and it cracks open the, the comfort, the status quo. That's how the light comes pouring in. If we're inside the box, there's no light inside the box. It's a closed, it's a closed circuit. So what's the takeaway? The takeaway is Avram, David HaMelech, Abraham and King David teach us something extremely important. And that is, and that is, that if you want to make something holy, if you want to have a truly transform, a transformative experience to entirely redefine what this is, then it's got to cost you. 
It's got it's got you got to feel the pinch. It doesn't only mean monetarily, although it does say in, in, in Jewish law that you shouldn't look for a discount on a mitzvah. That's what it says. You should you shouldn't be looking to cut corners on a mitzvah. But it's not only money. Like I said before, it's about how much time are you studying Torah? Or how much brain power are you investing in what that time that you're studying Torah? And it is true in every mitzvah. Prayer, Torah study, tzedakah, whatever mitzvah it is, we have to push ourselves. A little bit beyond. If it's comfortable, it's not not good, but it's not transformative. Transformative is when we leave it on the floor. All right. I want to conclude. I want to conclude with text 15. This is. I was looking through the text now just to see which one would be a good one to conclude with, and this is it. This is this is the one. This is what summarizes everything and pulls it all together. The Rebbe says, I'm going to read this, one should not think. Personally, I am naturally inclined to Jewish observance. Additionally, the Torah was given to me as a gift. And for me, it's easy to keep the mitzvot because my Yetzirah, my evil inclination, animal soul, go easy on me. So the need for spiritual hard work doesn't apply to me. First of all, who's saying this? But let's say somebody could say this. You know what? I'm good. Spiritually, it's good. I do the mitzvot, I study Torah. It's easy for me. No, the Rebbe says, that's not good enough. Abraham and David teach us otherwise, even in the case of something that was rightfully theirs and which they could have gotten easily, they refused to accept it for free. Don't take the easy way out. Don't go the path of least resistance. Instead, they paid full price for it, and that's our message also. You got to leave it on the table, break, knock down that door, break through the resistance, and go beyond the status quo. I'm speaking to myself first and foremost. And speaking to all of you, this is a fabrengen, right? And a fabrengen, it's, you know, the, the speaker, the, whoever's talking, or most of the doing, most of the talking, is not chas v'shom, preaching to anyone else. But first and foremost, having a conversation with self, that's also being overheard. So what's the message? What's my message that I'm internalizing? It's, if it's easy, it's only, it only means one thing. You're not working hard enough. You're not, you're not really... You're not really um, gathering the sparks and, and, and making the magic happen. So, if it's easy, that's good, but it just means now we have to work a little bit harder to take it to the next level. So, in the spirit of this week's Torah portion, in the spirit of Chayisara, let's truly live. Let's truly live, and life is truly lived, as we see tonight, when we invest beyond what's comfortable. So, let's invest, whether it's Torah study, whether it's mitzvah, observance, whether it's giving tzedakah, whether it's davening, whatever it is, let's invest above and beyond what's comfortable to truly bring the light and make the transformation happen. Thank you very much for joining me tonight for Torah Studies. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope that it resonated with you. And uh, I'll be here for a few minutes to answer questions. Before I answer questions, I have to make one quick announcement. Tomorrow night, we have a very special event called Jewish daughter of Hamas. We have a young woman who was rescued from a very difficult situation growing up in a, in a, in a tough, uh, in a, in a, with a father who was uh, a member of Hamas. Her mother was Jewish, so she's a Jewish woman who grew up in a very complicated um, scenario. She has now dedicated her life to speaking about her story and to helping rescue women and girls who are in abusive situations, abusive uh, familial situations, and it's very important work. So join us tomorrow night, 8 p.m., for 
the incredible story of the Jewish daughter of Hamas. You can find out information, more information about the event and sign up. It's an online event. You can, you can find out more information at intownjewishacademy.org. All right, and now to your questions. Please go ahead if there are any questions or comments. I, I, ha- I, I have a question. Oh. Go ahead, yeah. Wait, wait, Irena, you um, just, yeah. So, you know, I mean, this is the, 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 I mean, this is fueled by my being from Argentina and things that are happening there right now. So, but it's still a question. On the third way of acquiring, you know, it seems to me that the, the Torah, the, the, it, it, the Talmud, it's been so, um, uh, taken so much care of you not being able to say anything, and that's why you pay full price. And yet, one of the three ways of acknowledging that land was bought or b- bought or sold is by fixing it up or making it. Right. So, what about if someone goes in and steals the land? And then, which is happening all over in Argentina, you go there, you occupy, and then no one can tell you to leave, and then on top of you do something. It doesn't match, you know, the shekels to make sure, and then this other thing. Excellent question. So this, your question is excellent, and it gives me an opportunity to clarify. And it's important that I clarify. So basically, when the Talmud says there are three ways to acquire property, the foundation of that is if there's a mutual um, decision that the, tra- that the property be transferred. In other words, it's not a unilateral thing like I want to steal your land, so I'm going to go in, change the locks, and, and I got the land. That's not what the Talmud is saying. What the Talmud is, but, but thanks for asking so that I can clarify that because that's a very important clarification. It's talking about a case where there's, a, there's a agreement between the previous owner and the new owners, but the question that the Talmud is asking is what physical there's consent. There's verbal consent. Everyone agrees to it. But what action needs to be taken to actually trigger the deal? In other words, give you an example. It's not even a theoretical question. It's a practical question. Let's say two people agree. I'll sell it to you. You'll buy it from me. Piece of land. A moment, a minute after you and I verbally agree, a meteor falls out of the sky and obliterates the field. Who takes the loss? Are you with me? It's a, it's a practical question. It is. It's a practical question. Now, you're going to say a meteor is not practical, so then come up with your own thing, right? Come, let's, say, let's say somebody buys a land, uh, somebody buys a land in another country, and it takes them six months to get there. In the meantime, there was a field that got decimated by a swarm of locusts. Who takes the loss? So halacha can't keep it vague. Jewish law has to have a definition of when the legal transfer has taken place and the liability is now moved from, in other words, the owner, the original owner can say, hey, 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 meteor, locust, I feel bad, but it's yours now. When does that happen? So the Talmud says, Mishnah says, there are three triggers, either with consent, consent is the, is the foundation, but the trigger, the, the actual mechanism is either money, consent plus money, consent plus deed, or consent plus some action. So that's it. 
until until one of those three things happen, it still belongs. Even if there's agreement, it still belongs to the original owner. And that means if a meteor hits and the owner says, all right, sorry about the meteor, but give me my money because we had a deal. No deal. There's no legal deal. Look, halacha is very, very definitive when it comes to laws of Kenyan, laws of acquisition. Because any legal system has to have that defined. Because otherwise, it's, it's, it's going to be constant fighting. Constant fighting. Right, you purchase a car, yeah? You purchase a car in an office somewhere, in a dealership. You come out, and mitamal, in between the, 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 the agreement and, and going out to the car, it gets smashed. Whose loss is it? Who files the claim with the insurance? You or them? Is it yours or is it the dealership's? So in American law, there's, there's a trigger. If you signed the contract, if you didn't sign the contract, there's a certain point in which it's moved or it's not moved. You know, until that point, it's still theirs. Now it's now yours. Whatever happens. Same thing in Jewish law. So Jewish law has three triggers. But no, no, no. You cannot just go in and, uh, you know, squatters' rights and say, now there is, there is something in Jewish law that talks about chazaka, three years or whatever, without, without, um, no, with knowledge from the owner and, and, and consent by virtue of the fact that there wasn't a protest, there, there is a discussion in Jewish law about something related to that, but it's not as simple as just going into someone else's place and changing the locks and calling it a day. Yeah. All right. Any other questions, comments? Yes, Richard. Just unclear. Yeah. Mike, I, I, Mike, I, you're next. Go, Richard. Yeah, I was unclear because I... So you're saying that um, David purchased the land, but he was not allowed to build on it. And Solomon did. Is that correct? So it's actually, it was David's purchase. God tells David to purchase it. He then tells David, do not build it, but work on the design and tell Solomon, your son, that he should build it. And that's exactly what happens. Yeah. That's exactly what happens. Mike, go ahead. Unrelated to anything we've said so far. A shout out to your mother from the Carters in Atlanta. We saw her in the... In the glass. In the oh, nice. Yeah. And then, how is your grandfather? He's good. He was listening to the class. Oh, great. Just a clock. Yeah. Shout out to him, too. I'll let him know. He's now, he just, he just uh, a minute ago, just um, kind of headed off. But, okay. yeah, he was listening. Thank you. I, I have to ask him Thank what he thinks about it, because, you know, it's, I got to make sure it's, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's up to par, but... Okay. Um, I'll, I'll definitely give regards. I'll let him know in a second that you... Thank, thank you for, for, for mentioning and asking. Appreciate it. Sure, sure. Bye-bye. All right. All right, folks. It's great to see everyone. Thank you for joining tonight. Don't forget, tomorrow night, um, Jewish Art of Hamas. Oh, and also, I'm sorry, I forgot. One more thing, one more thing. Monday night, this Monday night, we have the first session, this is for women only, of our Rosh Chodesh Society course. If you've been there in the past, you know it's amazing. My wife teaches, Mrs. Schusterman teaches... It's a great class. The topic is joy and happiness. And what better topic to explore than the topic of joy, the Jewish secrets to joy. Um, you know, we usually get together in person and we have wine and everything. So this time we have a special gift for everyone that signs up for the course. We, have, we just, we just cre <laughs> created our own custom wine glasses, custom printed wine glasses. We're going to give a... Hey there, guys. All right. So custom wine glasses and wine for those that join. So what a deal. What a deal. 
you get seven, seven months, seven months of, uh, of monthly classes on Rosh Chodesh, starting from this Monday, Rosh Chodesh Kislev. You get um, a, a free gift along, along the way. You get Torah study, you get camaraderie, you get joy, the secret to joy. Unbelievable. So check out again on the website, intownjewishacademy.org slash joy to find out more information and to sign up. You definitely do want to sign up for that. Donna, go ahead. Remember what we learned earlier in the week. Feed the cat first. Oh, trust me. We there's, learned that in the Torah. Trust me. This, this cat is very well fed. Yes, yes. <laughs> this is not a problem. Yes, yes. A hundred percent. Listen, every time I drink water, I'm like, but how about water for the cat? All right. Good, good, good. Good to, good to see everybody. Lila Tov, have a good night, and we'll see you soon. Take care, everyone. Bye, all.